2: And so I knew there was probably a bigger audience for this. And of course, you know, I'm going to my dentist or the grocery clerk, and we're talking about hacker stories. Like, why is my dentist talking about hacker stories? Everyone seems to be interested in this as well.
1: Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. Thanks for being here and hanging out with me here today. And thank you to so many of you who signed up to receive emails about each episode of this show. If you aren't already on that list, every Tuesday I send an email with a behind the scenes look at this show and how I learned about and booked that guest. If that sounds interesting to you, take a second, go to the show notes or visit jklaus.com to subscribe to that list. Today is a really fun episode because I'm talking with another indie podcaster who is absolutely crushing it. His name is Jack Reciter. And before he was a podcaster, he had a really interesting background.
2: I was a network security engineer working for a Fortune 500 company, securing networks to keep bad guys out or whatever, uh, watching logs to see if there is anybody in there and just kind of uh, securing the system.
1: That may sound kind of intense or maybe even a little bit boring, but either way, it probably doesn't sound like the typical starting point for a mega hit podcast. But Jack wasn't a stranger to creating things independently either. I had been blogging for about seven
2: years before that. Basically, anything that I would hit professionally and couldn't find the answer to on Google, I'd be like, all right, well, there's no map for this. I got to go off the road. And so I just uh, figured out and then blog about it. Here's how I solve this problem. And I, I had also been throwing together all kinds of other projects, right? So I, I tried making different web apps and different uh, programs and different things like that. They, they didn't have any real success. Uh, and, and I had always wanted to make something that was just really like entrepreneurial or online or something like that, right? So I've just been watching people pass me by for decades of like, oh yeah, I remember when that website just started and now it's a billion-dollar company or a trillion-dollar company.
1: So Jack kept blogging, and he also kept his eyes open to other opportunities to create something new. And as his blog grew and he spent more time in the world of IT and cybersecurity, he noticed a gap. He was spending all day not only learning about cybersecurity, but also hearing some amazing stories about cybersecurity and cybercrime. And when he would tell other people these stories, he saw their eyes light up. People loved to hear about them. So in September of 2017, Jack decided there might just be a market out there for a podcast to tell these stories. These are true
2: stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Recider. This is Darknet Diaries.
1: Darknet Diaries tells stories specifically intended to capture, preserve, and explain the culture around hacking and cybersecurity in order to educate and entertain both technical and non-technical audiences. And to say that there was a market for Darknet Diaries would be an understatement. The show is now nearly four years old with just under 100 episodes, and things have been going pretty well for Jack.
2: I mean it, it's changed everything about my life, right? So it's my full-time job. I'm making more money now than I was as a as a network security engineer. I have three hundred thousand downloads per episode, which is in the in the podcast world. That's really amazing because that's like the top one percent of the top one percent in podcasts, so it's it's really up there. And when I go to conferences now, literally like half the conference knows who I am. So every other person I walk by. I'm like a mini celebrity to them, right? Yeah, these IT security conferences. And like you said, the Patreon is going really well, 18,000 a month there. So I've, I've got the influence now. I've got the, the money. I've got the everything that, you know, I, I dreamed of. But at the same time, the biggest takeaway of it is the amount of people that have just shown appreciation for it and said how much I've changed their lives, which I didn't expect this. But this is the thing that really has paid off the most as far as feeling re- rewarding for making it. I've changed people in the world and it's just so crazy to think about. It's just it's great all around.
1: So in this episode, we talk about Jack's full production process, how he built an audience in the early days, why he turned down the opportunity to join a big podcast network, and how his tenacity helps him market the show and secure great guests for Darknet Diaries. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Klaus. and as you'll hear Jack say in this episode, he is the beneficiary of his listeners sharing the show, and you can help me with just the same. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening, and now, let's talk with Jack. I've always
2: had this idea that I could make anything better, like any product better, like it just put it on my desk and I can figure out a way to improve it. And that was just kind of something I've always felt like. And so I'm like, well, why don't I just make my own things? If I'm if I'm so creative, not so much artistically and stuff, but just I, I like making things. I like building st- things or, or designing or something. Just put some ideas together. And this is one of my favorite things to do on my spare time is just come up with ideas for products, uh, websites, software, whatever. And so it just felt like a natural fit to me that I should be out there doing some entrepreneurial thing, making something and getting it out there. And, and you know, I, at the same time, it did feel like there's it's rewarding to make something that people appreciate and you change the world, you made it better in some way. And so I, I wanted to leave that mark in some
1: way as well. As someone in engineering, with a background in engineering, when did you start to appreciate content, both blogging and then eventually audio as a product, as opposed to like really hammering down on, I want to build websites, I want to build apps, something that was very technology specific.
2: Well, the blog was started just because I needed a place to take notes. You know, I was hitting the same problem over and over and forgetting how I solved it last time. So I was like, I I gotta write this stuff down, and I might as well write it on a public ledger for everyone to see. Like, there's no difference if I do it privately or publicly. So that's where you know it kind of started. And then I started seeing people appreciate it. They're like, Oh my gosh, I searched all over the web and I could not find the answer to this, and here it is. Thank you so much. And that was that was very rewarding. And you know, at the same time, I had some Google ads on there, and so. There was a little bit of money coming in. So I was like, well, you know, I'm I'm hitting all kinds of things I've I've liked. I'm teaching people things. I'm helping people. I'm making money off this. It's helping me because this is the notes I refer to myself when I'm hitting these problems. And so it was just so valuable to me to just have a blog out there uh, and uh, yeah, I didn't know where I was going to go next with it. Um, you know, maybe it was this different blog. Cause I, I did make another blog, like a local city blog and some cooking blogs and other things just, you know, dabbling with other stuff. But, um, that one was pretty much the main one. And and yeah, it was, it was pretty rewarding.
1: It was this like you were blogging about how you were preventing or solving security vulnerabilities at the company you were working at.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was it was like, uh, oh, we hit this uh, syslog message, right? There's a log uh, a message that you know is showing you an error message or something, and you Google it, and there's no, there's zero, like literally zero hits for this error message, and you're like, how is how could there be like error message nine zero zero seven six, and nobody has ever documented this ever on the internet, right? So. Now I want to know what that error message means and how what do I need to do to fix this problem to get over this, right? So I, I had to open up a, a you know a case with the vendor and say, can you explain this to me? And then they would have an engineer explain it to me on the phone and then I'd write that down and blog about it or whatever. Right. So these are the ways that I would solve these things. And yeah, it was it was super helpful.
1: In in a world of trying to hack into systems and trying to protect systems. It always kind of seems to me like an arms race. Like, is there ever really an advantage to one side? Or it seems it seems like the side of protection is constantly playing catch up to me. What's your take on that?
2: Yeah, it does seem it does seem a little asymmetrical, where the the attackers just need to be right once, while the defenders need to be right every single time. Because if they miss once, then the attackers get in. But I, I do think that things are designed with security in mind, right? So like the whole world has the defenders back basically, you know, the vendors are trying to make things secure and it's a a big story if it isn't, you know, so it's, it's the norm, it's supposed to be that way. It's kind of surprising whenever it isn't. So, um, yeah, it, it it does seem to be very tricky for for us to defend when somebody. The thing is, is that when you have somebody with enough resources and motivation, uh, they can get around anything. Even if the network is completely secure, they can find somebody who works there and pay them a lot of money. Or threaten them, <laughs> you know. We're gonna we're gonna hurt your family or something if you don't uh, steal these documents and get it to us, right? So there's always a way if somebody has enough, uh, you know, resources and motivation. There's always a way.
1: So you're doing this blog. When does the blog become the idea for a podcast? Uh, I don't think the
2: blog ever did become an idea for a podcast. But I I, I mentioned the blog because it was it was something that I had practiced writing technical stuff as simple as I could. That was one of the things in there, right? So I have to explain what a VPN is. Well, that's kind of tricky, right? So I I kind of, you know, stood around in my head trying to figure out the best way to explain this and then I would write it and scratch all that out and rewrite it and scratch all that out and then say, okay, I'm happy with this, but then a year later revisit and say, no, 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 there's a better way to explain this now, right? So it was kind of fun to explain these technical concepts in as simple terms as possible, because I think that was very important with the blog is let's not mess around with anyone's time. Let's make sure to give them the value that they want right away. And not like, you know, when you see a cooking blog, you see like six uh, pages of some story about Thanksgiving or somebody, you know, it's like, what, I just want this. (laughs) I just want the cooking recipe. I don't need your life story. So that was kind of my goal is let's move this stuff up to the top. And so transitioning that I think that was a skill of teaching people things of explaining things simply I mean technical concepts are hard to explain uh, simple sometimes so I I tried to uh, I tried to just that was kind of the practice I think that without that when I was doing a podcast about hacking stories and IT and infosec that kind of carried over and I think that was maybe the biggest skill that carried over but it didn't quite transform from a blog to that the audience is entirely different.
1: So where did the idea for podcasts all come from then? Why did you say, I want to do audio?
2: Yeah, it's like a million ideas. That's the thing, right? So growing up, listening to Ira Glass and This American Life and Radio Lab and all these things that when you hear it on the radio and you get to where you're going and you don't want to get out of the car because you just want to keep listening to it, there's something powerful in, in there that I was recognizing, you know? Like, why was this dumb story about a dog... <laughs> so fascinating to me that I had to become late for my appointment because I just really wanted to hear it. Like it made no sense. Like I'm not interested in that story whatsoever, but the way they explained it, they had me so glued and hooked and I needed to know what was going to happen. And there was just something about that. And I just felt that that was just so powerful. So, you know, you got that cooking in the back of my head for 10 years to 15 years, whatever. (laughs) And, and, you know, the boom of podcasts after cereal and all this stuff. And, I'm like, where's the podcast about hacker stories? And at the same time, I'm going to all these conferences and I'm meeting people who have amazing stories that, you know, the time where they were paid to break into a bank to test the bank's security, but they broke into the wrong bank. And then it's like, whoops, I had just hacked into the wrong bank and I have no authorization to do this, right? That's an amazing story. And I want that to hit the you know general audiences, not just in those little circles in the, in the IT security space. And so I knew there was probably a bigger audience for this. And of course, you know, I'm going to my dentist or the cl- grocery clerk, and we're talking about hacker stories. Like, why is my dentist talking about hacker stories? Everyone seems to be interested in this as well. So. At that time, I, I also heard somebody tell me, like, at, a, at an IT security conference, you know, a lot of egg, egg te- technical talks. Somebody's like, if you want to be a superstar in this space, don't try to give a talk at one of these IT security talks. Go give a talk at Comic-Con or something, right? And the people there, if you tell them you're a hacker, they're going to flip their minds. They're going to be like, oh, my gosh, tell me all the things about what you do and stuff. And I guess, lastly, as I couldn't find a show out there that just itched the scratch itch of... I want a high drama hacking story that is, you know, open for everyone, but not too dumb. I don't want it to be Discovery Channel of just like, well, we're not going to tell you any of the technical stuff. We're just going to tell you all the drama. No, I still want some of the technical stuff. I think think a lot of people are more technical than they give themselves credit for. Yeah, I was just like, that show doesn't exist. I can't find it out there. You know, the IT shows were, were either very newsy or nerdy or interviewee, but they weren't filled with audio scores and, uh, you know, multiple pe- guests talking and stuff. It was, it, it was not the same. So, yeah, I wanted the show. And all these things were in my head. I was just like, okay, maybe I can make something. And that's kind of where the idea came from. <laughs> as short as I can be.
1: <laughs> After a quick break... Jack and I go step-by-step through his process of producing an episode of Darknet Diaries from beginning to end. And a little bit later, Jack talks about how he doubled down on marketing the show in its early days. So stick around, and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business, and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator, too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And UScreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. UScreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with UScreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, UScreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit That's uscreen.link/j. That's u s c r e e n.link/j, and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Jack Reciter of Darknet Diaries. As a podcaster, it's immediately obvious to me as a listener just how much production and sound design Jack puts into each episode. And let me tell you, that's really impressive for an indie podcaster. So I asked Jack if he expected this level of quality from himself, even in the early days of getting started.
2: Yeah, I mean, the first Google search I had was, how does Radiolab make their podcast? And that wasn't very fruitful, but I eventually found a book called Out on the Wire, which is made by Ira Glass, the people at Radiolab, Roman Mars, and many more in that area of, of high production shows. And that was the, that was the book that really gave me the confidence that maybe I could do this. But of course, at the same time, all those shows are made by 10 or more people. And that was really disheartening as well. So then I had to kind of analyze the the space even more and say, are there podcasts out there that are made by one or two people that have this same kind of high production value? And that's when I hit shows like Criminal is made by two people and there's some mixing by a third person, but it was, it was mostly two people. And, uh, there's another show called, I think, first day back. And that one is made by one person. And it has those, it has that, you know, those elements of really high production. And I was like, okay, if one or two people can do this, then it is within reach. And here's the blueprint, right? The book explains it's, it's kind of like, here's, here's how these storytellers make their audio. Right. And then, and so it's like, okay, I think I can do this. So I had the, the, the drive, the confidence and the, uh, the know-how or the, you know, the book on teaching me how, and that's how I got started. Cause if you just make an interview podcast, that can just be figured out in a weekend, you know, you can, you can figure out all the gear and stuff, but I'm, I'm doing, like you said, high production. There's, there's, music behind it. I got multiple guests that I'm interviewing. There's a story that we got, we're following a story arc. So now there's all kinds of storytelling elements and writing involved. And so it wasn't just the equipment and the logistics of it. It was really how do you put together the production of it all? and And that was quite a challenge at the
1: beginning. I haven't read Out on a Wire, but now I'm adding it to my reading list. What are some of the things that stick out to you almost four years later about that book that were so foundational to putting the show together?
2: Yeah, so uh, there's a storytelling formula. They have, when, I mean, everyone has their different formula, but one of the formulas that stood out was one that goes like this. This is a story about X, but Y happens instead. And this is really interesting to me because what's the, what's the story arc, right? So let's say, you know, that guy who wanted to pen test a bank, but got, got into the wrong bank, right? This is a story about a, a penetration test, but they hacked the wrong bank instead right they got into the wrong bank because that's that but is such an incredible part of storytelling because it's tell it, it it means that something is going to go wrong that we don't expect and that's kind of the one of the helpful things about storytelling is we think the story is going to go this way but instead it takes a total left turn
0: when you go into a bank you see all kinds of physical security checks there are thick panes of glass between the tellers and customers Vaults with a large heavy door, cameras everywhere, a security guard is walking around. But do you think about ways you could bypass all of that? You might notice a back door to the bank and wonder if it's unlocked. Or the door between the tellers and customers is so short that you could jump over it. Or maybe you see a blind spot in the way the cameras are pointing. In this episode, we're going to test the physical security of a bank. But our goal isn't to steal cash to get access to the teller's computer in this episode we're going to hear a story from jason e street what's up jason is one of those guys that has endless stories of incredible things that have happened to him he's also a diet pepsi addict when you talk to him you hear him say random things like
1: it's never drinking the diet pepsi that gets me it's usually trying to get rid of the diet pepsi that gets me Uh, i almost died uh off a cliff in Bulgaria.
0: While I was talking to him, I was kind of curious to hear the backstory of all these little footnotes that he was throwing at me. But it didn't take long before I heard him say something that I just had to hear the whole story.
1: I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut,
0: and that is such an incredible
2: way for us to just, as we're listening, we're just like, huh? What? How could that have been? There's no way that have that that could have happened. That's impossible. And so we're learning about it as the person's learning about, it. I don't know, it's, it, that's the formula. This is a story about X, but why happened instead. So sometimes when I was writing stories at the beginning, I was lost in them, right? I didn't know how they were going to end or where we, how we can go to the next part or all these things. And so then I would just kind of, not just, uh, you know, I knew what the story was about because I had the broad level, but now we can shrink it down. Okay. So in this 90 seconds, what's in this 90 seconds that I can explain in the same formula, right? And so... Whenever I got lost, I would just go back to this kind of scaffolding, this framework and say, okay, what am I missing as far as this goes? And then that all the pieces would just come together. And so I never really had any sort of writer's block because I had these tools to help me get through it.
1: I love that. I love that framework. And it's interesting because on one hand, it almost feels like you're spoiling the punchline right off the bat. But then also, I mean, I get hooked by stories that start off with that because even though I know where we're headed the entire time I have this open loop of like, okay, I know where we are in the story right now. And I'm like thinking through how, how do I think we're going to get to that end point that I know mm-hmm. we're destined for? Yeah. It's an interesting duality. Cause it feels like I already know the outcome. So why am I so engaged in the story? But it works. And like, there's,
2: there's some stories that you'd never think that we're going to get to that outcome. Cause like, you know, I was listening to one marriage podcast story. Right. And at the beginning, they break up and, they, and the, the person gets married to someone entirely else. And I'm like, how do they get married? They're, already, they're married to someone else. This is impossible. And so, you know, somehow they've got to, you know, they're going to separate and get back together at the end. And you're sticking around to figure out how in the world are they ever going to do this or something. So it's, it's really fascinating.
1: At this point in the conversation, I couldn't resist getting into the weeds a little bit. With so much production work going into each and every episode, I wanted to get a full look into Jack's workflow from taking an episode from idea to reality.
2: So I have um, a few ways I get story ideas, right? So I go to conferences and I listen to a lot of people talk. So it could be just somebody gave a talk at a conference, you know, these IT security conferences that I go to. I could also just see the news, right? Because I'm I'm tuned in because that's what I was doing for my day job. I saw what Russia was doing and China was doing and hacking stories and stuff like that, right? So those are fascinating. I could do something there. But now I'm in the position where enough people know my show that they're bringing me stories, so that's cool too. Uh, Oh, I also have Google Alerts. So I look for um, things until Google, like anytime there's a news article that says hacker was killed, uh, that's kind of uh, unsuspecting, right? It's not We don't really suspect that, but that could be a good story or biggest hack ever or something like that, right? So these kind of keyword searches I'm looking for on a daily basis. And so, you know, stories come to me in that way. And then I'll interview the person. Sometimes it takes me a year to get the interview. I'll be not just knocking on shoulders, wow. asking over and over, like, please, 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 could we do this yet? Um, and, you know, sometimes people are just too busy. They just don't see it or whatever. But um, I'm persistent, and I'll try to get it. But, uh, yeah, I'll get the interview, and then... If I, I I'll probably do some research more of the story before the interview or something and do some more research after the interview and then, um, get the story together. So I'm writing the script and the narration weaving in the, uh, audio, right? So I'm taking like, I'm listening to the audio and okay, well this little clip here is great to stick right in as I'm explaining this part and stuff like that. So I, I write it out and then I narrate it and then I, um, edit the narration because I really suck at narrating. So I probably say every line twice and then I have to go back and, uh, take out those blips and then I have to, uh, stitch it all together or assemble it. And then I'll just go ahead and add the sound uh, to it. So there's probably like 15 songs that I add to each episode on average. Wow. And then I listen to it. And it's only at that point that I can actually stand back and look at, Look at the painting on the wall and say, "Does this look like anything even legible?" Right? Because when you're in all that mess to begin with, it's just impossible to tell. I mean, when you're when you're dealing with a thirty page script, you can't stand back and look at it and say, "Is this making any sense?" So um, it's only when I, you know, I'm going to do some yard work or something, and I am listening for an hour, and I could just absorb it for the first time ever. Then I, I can, I can know if it's good or not. Yeah. And then, and then I, there's like six more rounds of edits. So that's kind of how the show gets put. And then of course I, I get some, uh, some artwork, put it up and put it on the host and add a web page and stuff like that. But those those things I was doing all by myself for the first 40 episodes.
1: Well, let me, uh, let me zoom in on some of that first and then we'll go to post episode 40. You hear the idea and you say, okay, that's interesting. That sounds like a good concept for a show episode. And you probably pretty early on know what the, this is a story about X, but Y happens instead. But as you're laying out this episode framework and you're starting to get into the script, are you discovering that as you create start to finish? Or do you start to like create a skeleton of sorts and then fill in the pieces? I think like somewhere
2: in there, as you know, maybe as I'm listening to the interview, I'm realizing, like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm taking a note on where the big turns are, right? Because I think that's important. We're expecting the story to go in this direction, but all of a sudden, it just completely changed gears, right? Everything is just switched over. So that is an important part. Like, that, that's probably the most important part of the story is when it completely changes in a new direction. And so it's not so much that I'm building that formula out today. I mean, I was at the early days, but now I'm like, okay, those, those, these are the moments that I that I really care about right so I want to take those slow if we go through a moment like that I will typically in the interview say let's go into the beginning and do it again <laughs> not repeat the same things but now that I know that this was such a major change of the story I want to know like you told me that you told me the, the the meat and potatoes of it but now I want to hear the emotion behind it like what did it feel like when all of a sudden you learned about this because often our our feelings, are what we what hit our first and then our logic hits the second, right? So they're telling us, telling me what logically happened, but now I want to know what emotionally happened first. Like when you open that envelope, what happened to you emotionally? Because that's that happened first, not what you saw, right? So um, I go back and, and try to figure that out. I do take notes mentally on what my favorite parts are and then just make sure that that gets in there and then that kind of defines
1: the story as far as, as major peaks. When you talk about the interview, you pull in a lot of audio from the interview, but do you do a lot of these interviews as research and like supplements the story?
2: Uh, Well, I don't typically like experts on my show. I typically like the people who were there and have the firsthand experience. So I will get those interviews first to hear what, uh, what they had. But then I do fact checking as far as calling up other people, their friends, their family, their neighbors. I haven't called the neighbors yet, but I've called their friends and family and uh, messaging people and stuff to just kind of get more of the story, parts that I don't quite understand or something, and and I'll do some other stuff. I I don't always put those audio bits in there because people don't want to have their voice in there or whatever, but it's typically just the person telling the story that was there.
1: Well, going back to, you know, September 2017, I think, is when your first episode aired. And then for the first several episodes, it looks like you were releasing every two weeks. This sounds like an insane amount of work, especially if you are working at a full-time job at the time that you're starting this. How many episodes are you working on in parallel at any given time, especially if it takes you a year sometimes to get the interview? Uh
2: yeah. Um, I mean, at the time, it was insane. But I was feeling rushed because every other podcast out there had like 100 episodes already out there. And I wanted to have like a good back catalog so people could binge and get part of it. If you have like one or two episodes or even five episodes, it's just like, uh, yeah, this is still new. I'm not sure if I'm going to get into it or whatever. And it, when, But when the show has like 20 or 40 episodes, then you feel like, oh, wow, this one – I don't know. There was just something in me that was like, I need a big backlog and I need to make this as like, it wasn't so much getting it uh, out there for the current listeners. It was just getting it out there for future listeners. And that was, it was weird, but I just needed to like turn it out really quick. And At the same time, I wanted to turn it out because I wanted to get good at this and I knew I wasn't good yet. And so it was just a matter of just keep doing it and keep doing it get it on the schedule and go. And that really helped as far as like getting better at it and stuff.
1: Well, how long does it take you now to go like beginning to end on an episode?
2: I mean, it still takes me about the same amount of time as it did before, but uh it's 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 a good two weeks, right? So that's forty hours of of work and I, that's now I have other people helping me, so that forty hours is kind of split between other people and now I'm looking at my I'm looking at my episodes that I'm currently working on, and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten that are that have started production. So that's kind of my cue right now. 10 are in production. That means I've already done the interview or more.
1: Wow. Do you ever get these stories like mixed up? (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I am not good at remembering these stories. So I've actually looked at a couple old ones and I'm like, I don't have no recollection making this. (laughs) And yet there's my (laughs) voice and it's on my website. And I was like, what? How does this end? Like, I can't wait to hear how it ends.
1: (laughs) When we come back, Jack talks about quitting his job to focus on Darknet Diaries full-time and the specific strategies he used to market the show. Right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, As of this recording, Darknet Diaries is four years old and is just about to cross the 100 episode mark with more than 300,000 downloads per episode. By comparison, Creative Elements is about a year and a half old, is nearing episode 80 and has 10,000 downloads per episode. And those are numbers that I'm really proud of. So I asked Jack at what point he took the leap into focusing on Darknet Diaries full time. It was about nine months into making
2: it. Which, yeah, you're right. Making a podcast like this every two weeks with a full-time job was crazy. But there was something early on, which was people really liked it. And I was getting messages from total strangers. I was meeting people at conferences who I never knew before and weren't friends or friends of friends or friends of friends of friends. And they're like, what? You you're the one who makes that show? I love it. I've listened to every single episode and I can't wait for the next one. And there was something about that, something, the way that they came up to me. I mean, there was somebody who handed me a hundred dollar bill once at a conference and said, you are so valuable to me here, take this. And I knew like, even early on, even when I had just a thousand listeners, that was so powerful to me to know that I had something important, right? It's just that you get that glimmer that you've made something, but you're not sure if it's good or not. But then when you see these people who just totally appreciate you, then you know it's worth pursuing, right? So I, I don't want to, I don't feel like I had this like false dream that I was chasing. I felt like there was something really there that I knew, I knew I had it. And so, uh, you know, with with that, And being kind of burnt out at work and, you know, there was a total, we got acquired by a new company and it was uh, new management and all this stuff just wasn't working out for me there. I was like, I I think I'm going to quit this and focus on my podcast full time for three months. So I kind of took a, a three month break of just work to see if I could get this, get through this. And I was like, hopefully by the end of the three months, I'll start to make enough money to eat ramen noodles or something. Right. And that this can sustain me to keep, go another month after that or something, right? So that was the case, right? I took a I took a break and focused. On, and, and in fact, during that time on that break, I, I switched to uh, one a month. I slowed down the production of it so that I could speed up the um, the promotion, like the marketing of it, because I think that was what the next step was. I had the good show. It wasn't, I didn't, like that, there's three things I always say people need to do for a good podcast, right? Is to make a good show to begin with, a great show if you can then market it, then monetize it, right? So you're not going to be able to monetize it if you have no listeners and you can't get listeners if your show sucks. So it has to be in this direct, in this order. So I had the great show, I feel, felt like, because people were, total strangers were approaching me. And so now I needed to market it. So I, I slowed down the production to once a month so that I could just push out the marketing message as best as I could. And that was mostly social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Yeah, after that, started to pick up, and I got my first sponsor at the end of that three months. And it
1: was full-time podcasting ever since then. Was that around episode 40 when you said you started bringing people in? No, that was more like episode 20 or 25. A lot of people who start a podcast, even if they get to episode 20 or 25, which statistically they don't, even if they do, they still have such a small audience that they're just wallowing in like, who's hearing this? So how did... When you started considering marketing as a serious part of the process here and you were using social media, what did that actually look like, though? How did you actually get people to pay attention and to care?
2: I've been wanting to get to this point so bad in my whole life, right? to have something that is worth being an entrepreneur about, right? So I've tried all these things before. I've tried I've got ninety nine percent of the way done all these projects, but never got it. The blog was there, but it wasn't just like bringing in, you know, tons of stuff. This I saw as potential of like this could make some money, you know, and i could I could change my whole career on this and stuff. So I thought this was worthy. Uh, you know, it's something that I've wanted too. And because I wanted it, that means I've read tons of entrepreneur books in the past, right? So Gary Vaynerchuk, Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss, you name it. Just all these all these entrepreneur people. I've just been binging all their books. And so by the time that I had something worth marketing, like had something made and now I just needed to get it out there, I had tons of tricks already. So I went crazy with it, right? So one of the things I did is I made a list of 100 influencers, people who are journalists, bloggers, YouTubers, podcasters, just people who are big on Twitter, right? Just anything that has an audience. Because I knew if I could get them as listeners, then their promotion or their, you know, suggestion to listen to my show is going to be much more important than the person who has just five followers on Twitter. So I sent an email to 100 people Two of them took me up on it, right? So it was a 2% success. But that 2%, one of them was a person with a million followers on Twitter. And they were like, you have to listen to this podcast. And that was such a big feeling for me to see somebody with a million followers tweet about my show, right? So that was a big win.
1: What was the email? What was the call to action in the email?
2: Oh, it was, uh, hey, I've got this podcast. I think it's right up your alley. You might want to check it out. It It was kind of a a soft pitch, but it was something, I don't know, something like that. I think, you know, your, your audience would find this valuable, something like that.
1: So it was, a, it was an ask to listen, not necessarily to share about it?
2: Yeah, but at the same time, I'm hinting, like, I think your audience would appreciate knowing about this. So uh, yeah, it was kind of a soft one, but 2%. And so the other one was The Guardian, Guardian uh, newspaper. Uh, they had a little mention of me. Like, uh, here's a new podcast you might be interested in. It was just like a two-paragraph thing. But I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in The Guardian. And somebody tweeted me, this is great. So um, that was, you know, I took those. It didn't really do much. I mean, I'm looking at how many people clicked from The Guardian. It wasn't many. And there wasn't that many likes on that tweet. Because things just don't go viral like that. Because people don't like things that they don't know. Right. So they like things they do know that they like. Right. And so if you say, hey, check out this new podcast. Nobody knows about that podcast. So nobody's liking it. Nobody's retweeting it. Uh, it just doesn't work. So and, and if they do, they've got to stop what they're doing on Twitter, go listen to the show for an hour and then come back and then like it. It's just not going to happen. Right. You're, you're in that moment. You either like or keep scrolling or go subscribe or something. So yeah, nothing really came out of those, but I took those as social proof. I stuck them on the front page of my website. I'm like, look at this! People with million followers are tweeting about this. The Guardian is writing about this. Why aren't you listening, right? And so that really, when you land on the website and you see that, you're like, oh wow, this is like like you were telling me before this show started. Like
1: I don't know how I missed this. Totally. I mean, it was it was like, how have I not heard this? This is so well done, and it's it feels like this. Perfect intersection of technology and true crime. And for all the true crime that I hear about, I hadn't heard about this, you know, specific bent on true crime.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the feeling I, I want is, wait, how did I not know about this? And, and you, then you want to get into it. And if you don't have that social proofing, if, it's, if the show doesn't pop out at you in some way and, and just hit you like that. Like, you know, you find a new show, you don't always say that about new shows. Even shows I have, like 100-episode backlog, you don't always say that. Like, oh, how, how have I not found this? You just kind of feel like, oh, of course a show like that exists, right? But you had a different feeling from mine, and that's kind of what I was going at, is I want people to be really surprised when they find it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, these are some of the things that I was doing I was social- on, on Twitter and stuff. I was just posting like crazy, two, three tweets a day, getting it queued up and – uh Buffer or Edgar or something and just getting tons of stuff out there. It wasn't always self-promo, right? It was often building up my social media, right? So I wanted to have my goal. My first goal was to have 10,000 followers on all three accounts, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in one year. And so, how do I get that? That's a slow process, but uh, you know, a year's going to pass, and I'm either going to have that or not. And I might as well have that after a year. So it was it was a serious goal, and I hit it. And you know, once you hit like 10,000 followers, things really start opening up. You get new features. You get new. Uh, you, you know, you know, new people messaging you because you, you know, p- bigger people are feeling like, oh, this is more important. Like you're saying, you got that feeling of how did I not know about this? Cause my, my Twitter now has 60,000 followers. Right. So it's like, wow, this is a big thing that I've been missing this whole time. Right. So it has that social proofing as well of like, oh, where, where <laughs> how did I miss this? So that, I mean, that there's a bunch going on there.
1: Social proof like plays to, for people to take something seriously. Right. But there's still the need for traffic or distribution to get to the website to see the social proof in the first place. So how are you now driving people to the website to see this and say, oh, I guess this is something I should be taking seriously. I'll take a listen.
2: It was also word of mouth. And for that, what I was doing is not really looking for new listeners, But seeing what I could do more for my current listeners, right? So I knew I had these listeners. Like, what would make the show even better for you? What would so? There's this. There's this thing I I look at sometimes, which is how many downloads is one listener doing? On the average listener doing? And if they're just listening to one episode and leaving, how can I get them to listen to two episodes and then leave, (laughs) or three episodes and then leave? Right? And so I want that list to grow. I want them to stay longer. And in order to do that, so I I put a lot of focus just on my current listeners. Uh, In order to do that, I want them to get more value out of it. I want them to be more surprised. I don't want them to be bored because they've listened to you know, five or 10 or 15. And they're like, yeah, I kind of know what's going to happen in the 16th episode, right? I want them to feel like I have no idea what's going to happen in the 16th episode, but I'm sure I'm going to love it. And it's going to be enjoyable. And I'm definitely going to be there for it, right? So it's, I don't want them to get bored with it. I want them to always be surprised by it and, and wowed and stuff like that. So I'm always looking for ways to improve and over-deliver and surprise and all these things. And if you can get that, if you can get somebody who's listening to 15 episodes and can't wait for the next one... Then you've got somebody who's going into the office and telling their coworkers, dude, you have to listen to this show or telling their parents or sitting down with their family or playing it in a car road trip and saying, hey, let's, let's have everyone in the car listen to this. I've got this great show I want you to try too. And this is, this is where I knew, I mean, this is probably where most of my listeners came from is word of mouth. And in order to get that word of mouth, I really have to win the hearts of my current listeners and not really look for those new ones.
1: When you look back at the history of growth for the show, were there major inflection points? And if so, were there like certain events tied to that? Was it about somebody tweeting or was it more mathematically like I got to this point and I had enough true fans of the show that on a weekly basis now X number of them were sharing it?
2: I I could go in a couple ways here. Um, I do feel like there is, there was something that was fascinating with me at the beginning was, where is the critical mass in podcasting? Where do you get a certain amount of listeners where then those listeners just kind of push you and share the show and you don't have to market it anymore? I I wrote a blog article about this. I have a a podcasting blog called Lime.Link where I blog about stuff like this. But I found that like there was different, there were different points where this was, would happen more. At 150 listeners of people who I didn't know, they weren't my friends and family, I felt like they were already sharing it, right? So these strangers I was meeting in the conference, like day three, I had 150 listeners because I had you know, a blog that I could promote it on. That was another thing. I was promoting it on my, my other blog. And so that was getting seven new downloads a day, right? Just from that. So uh, I was realizing at 150 listeners that already at that point, they're sharing it. And I was growing at like 1% or 2% a month just from that. And that is kind of a big number too, because um, there's some some statistics out there in the podcast world that uh, somewhere between 120 to 150 downloads per episode is what the average podcast gets. So that's 50% of all podcasts in the world get about 150 or less downloads. So... It's because it's really struggling to get to that point. But then once you get to that point, now they're starting to share it, right? So it's kind of that uphill roll of the rock until you get there. And now it's still an uphill thing, but now you got a few more hands helping you push up it. At the same time, there's that Malcolm Gladwell statistic of like everyone knows one hundred and fifty or you can only know one hundred and fifty people and after that, you start losing track of who who you know and stuff like that. And tribes, I think the book was tribes, wasn't it? No, that was a different book. Can't remember Malcolm Gladwell's book, but he talks about how
1: outliers maybe. but that's Dunbar's number you're talking about
2: Dunbar's number? okay yeah, it's it's fat it's fascinating that that number one hundred and fifty exists in in different. In different aspects, right? And so I feel like that's the first kind of inflection point. But then when you get to like somewhere around 1,200 downloads per episode or fifteen hundred downloads per episode, you get this next wind of people pushing you up that hill. And then again, I think it's at uh, five thousand downloads per episode. You just you feel things moving faster. Like it's 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 not like overnight, but you're like, yeah, wow, things are growing a lot quicker now. Um, so you get these extra things. But there was a there was another thing which is. When guests first started bringing me stories, right? So a guy came out of prison, and he comes to me and he says, "I don't know who you are, but I've been told I need to share my story with you." I'm like, "Well, okay." And <laughs> he sh- he gives me his uh, subpoena and all his court records, and I was like, "Holy cow! You've got like the greatest story I've ever heard," and that was um, that was really f- f- magical to me. There's lots of luck in the world that you can have, but but when you are the person who makes these kind of things, these kind of stories or whatever, you become the go-to person for when somebody wants to tell you that story. Right. So since then I've had like 10 people come and bring me their incredible story and I don't have to go find them. And that is not, it's, it's a type of luck, but it's the best kind of luck. It's the luck that when you're known for something that you get that, exp- that opportunity. And, you know, I would never have known about these stories because nobody's ever talked about them. But I'm in that lucky position to have made my name here. So that, I think, was another big inflection point was when stuff started coming my way and I didn't have to work so hard to find the stories.
1: Let's take the podcaster who's been doing this for a while and they're 50 episodes in, but they're at 500 downloads per episode. Where do you think they should channel their marketing efforts right now?
2: I think there's two things. I'm a big fan of social media, For marketing, I was not a a player on social media before this. I mean, I did it only to market my blog, really. But I, I just am not like a fan of social media just in general. But everyone is on social media, so if you're like, I'm having trouble getting my word out, well, social media is the place to be. And it's not so much you need to make a podcast and then you'll get a social media following. It should be the opposite. Strategy it should be build that big social media following make a goal to get ten thousand followers in a year and then convert them to listeners right so that's the, that's flipping it over so uh, how do you get ten thousand listeners or ten thousand followers there's tons of articles out there I'm not going to be the one who's going to tell you what to do uh, because there's so many great articles out there and YouTube videos on how to get listen how to get followers and it's a lot easier to get somebody just to click follow and be done versus to be a subscriber and listen to your show and then promote it somewhere else, right? So um, yeah, build that social media following. Do it by posting a lot and not just like self-promotions, but like, let's do some inspirational posts. Let's do some funny posts. Let's do some news posts. Let's talk about some thoughts I had. I mean, the classic thing is like, if you're a sports podcaster, you obviously like talking about sports for two hours, on your show or whatever, however long your show is, just keep talking about it on Twitter. Like talk about sports for two hours a day on Twitter. Like that's great. Everyone will appreciate that because sports is just non-endless. It's not, it's not, it never ends. So uh, yeah, just take your natural conversation from your podcast to Twitter or whatever and and going crazy there. So that's one way. Another way is to really drive As much value to your listener as possible. Figure out what you want your listener to get out of your show. Do you want them to be happier because they're laughing at it? Do you want them to be more informed because you're teaching them something? Or whatever the case may be, what's that value they're going to take away from it and then deliver that in spades? over-deliver it to them, get them the most value that they could possibly get out of that hour or whatever it is that your show is, the more that they appreciate what you've done for them, the higher chance that they're going to share it. And when they're sharing it, that's golden.
1: What do you think about the future of podcasting generally? We're seeing, you know, Apple get into subscriptions. It seems like Apple and Spotify are really getting more intense about their positions in the podcasting marketplace. And we're also seeing a lot of consolidation with networks or even Spotify buying original shows. What's your take on what you think the next couple of years will be like in the podcasting industry?
2: I was blogging about this as well, that I don't like when shows become exclusive on a platform. I don't think that that helps the podcast industry at all. I hate it because it's like, it, the only thing that helps is the actual podcaster who makes the show, which I I can probably even argue that it doesn't even help them. Yes, $100 million to Joe Rogan is great, but now his influence is much less. Like the, he's he probably lost half his audience or more. So, um, do you know, if, what's he doing it for? Is he doing it just for the money or is he doing it for the influence? Is he doing it because he wants his name out? So you have to really put all these things in consideration. And I think some shows are losing huge audiences by going exclusive and making... I don't know. Anyway, I th- yeah, I think it's not very good for um, shows to become exclusive. It kind of ruins the whole point of it or the, the spirit of it. So I don't like that. I, there's some ad tracking going on that I don't like as well where certain hosts are able to see um more information about you that they should uh, just their listeners and so i I hope that goes away um but it probably won't and i think it's still growing i mean i'm looking at the pod news stuff and it's just growing tremendously so podcast is going to continue to grow hollywood's going to be entering it more celebrities are going to be entering it more i like that because it legitimizes podcasts more it makes um you know, it goes from somebody who's never listened to a podcast to, okay, I listened to this one podcast. And then once they're caught up on that, they're like, what other shows can I listen to? And then they find other shows that they like. So it's, it's, it introduces new people into the space and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I love podcasts at this point and I expect them to do well in the future.
1: Have you considered ever joining a network yourself?
2: Yeah, I uh, really had that kind of as a thought and a dream and a goal at first of to be part of one of these big networks. But the deal actually came across my table. And I didn't like it. The the terms on there were just too much. It was like, uh, we want to put too many ads in. And that was, I think, the biggest, biggest thing. And I said, well, I only want to put two ads, but they were like, no, we want to do four ads. And I was like, well, I only want to do two. Let's rewrite the contract to two. And they're like, well, that's a non-starter. So I never actually got to join, but it was really nice getting that opportunity because I had, if I would have joined the network, I probably would have grown faster and made a lot more money, but not doing it means that I was self-built, right? There's this independence of it all that feels great to be indie to look back and say I made this uh, without the help of a big network and all these things. And there there's something so satisfying about that at the end versus trying to get some shortcut to get there or something else. And you don't have to be affiliated to something else or or you know, apologize for them or anything like that. So Yeah. I I thought about it and I'm glad I didn't because I feel staunchly independent and I'm happy I am.
1: You uh, have been independently supported on Patreon from your listeners. And one of the most popular Patreons that I've seen personally with over 5,300 patrons, $18,000 per month. For someone listening to this who wants to be listener or fan supported, when do you think implementing Patreon makes sense?
2: For me, I don't, you, could, you could do it on day one. It's fine. I have no problem with that. Go ahead. But for me, it was when I had five people come to me and say, how do I donate to the show? And I had ads on the show. And I'm like, well, I have ads. I'm fine. I don't need your donation. But once that fifth person came, I realized people want to show appreciation and they want to support this. And so I might as well give them the option. And so that's when I started mine was after the fifth person asked, how do I donate? So yeah, then like I said, well, you know what, to, you know, do a thank you, I'll give you an ad free version of it and I'll give you some bonus episodes and stuff like that. And, um, I've studied, um, I've studied what goes on on, on Patreon to kind of figure out what's the best ba- best way to do this. You know, what should you offer and stuff? And i looking at the top 50 most popular Patreon podcasts. I, I see that people give bonus content and, um, ad-free feeds kind of as the most popular they've also been there for a long time like you know a year or so on Patreon and they they have a very good show right so it's not something that people turn on it for a little bit and turn off they, they have loyal listeners so I think that just the combination of those three things can make a very uh, successful Patreon but even if you have 20, 20 Patreon supporters that's still what like uh, $60 a month or so and that's
1: that's pretty good Have you looked at some of the um, Patreon-esque podcast-specific things like Supercast or Glow.fm before ultimately choosing Patreon?
2: I think when I was starting, those ones weren't around, but um, I probably would have chosen Supercast if it was. Yeah, Supercast wasn't around yet. I remember it launching after I started. It's really hard for me to switch because it's kind of a sticky thing. You got everyone already subscribed and stuff. But uh, yeah, Supercast is pretty cool. There's some others, but... I actually, probably if I were to redo it today, I would just run my own. There's a a few other podcasters I know that have just figured out how to take the Stripe API and implement it onto their website to build their own subscription system. And that that seems more my thing now.
1: Well, last question here. For somebody listening to this who is an aspiring podcaster, hasn't started the show yet, wants to be indie, what advice would you give them about getting started?
2: I think the best thing is to find something you're passionate about. Because when you are excited about a specific topic or whatever, it really shines in the show versus doing something because you think that's what's popular or that's what people want to hear. Yeah, that's I think is the biggest thing is find something. And, and if you're going to be doing it for a long time or whatever, you uh, you want to have fun doing it. So if you're passionate about it, that's going to be great versus uh, making something because somebody you think someone wants that in the world. So find what it is you really love talking about or getting into or getting crazy with. And then that I think can uh, go a long way.
1: What an incredible story. To have the level of scale that Jack does before hitting episode 100 is really impressive. Think about how many times creators on this very show talk about expecting that their first 100 attempts will be bad. that they want 100 attempts before they expect anyone to pay attention. Talk about a big difference here. Jack's story is really, really aspirational for me as a podcaster. I would absolutely love to do this show full time, and it's not impossible. And you as a listener can truly help make that happen by sharing the show or even just leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a lot further than you think. If you want to learn more about Darknet Diaries, you can subscribe in this podcast player you're listening to now or visit darknetdiaries.com. Links to both are in the show notes. And if you want to learn about starting your own podcast, I've also linked to a short workshop I've taught on starting a podcast as well as my full-length course, Podcast Like the Pros. Listeners of this show can save 20% using promo code ELEMENTS. Thanks to Jack for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Tonhunter for mixing the show and Brian Steele for creating our music. Every week, I send an email with each episode to tell the story of how I booked the guest. People seem to love it, and I think you will too. You can get on that list by subscribing to my newsletter at jklaus.com. A link is in the show notes. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.